And I, I, I just have this burden on my heart uh, the past several weeks, really, to um, teach on what we believe about the end times and to teach on what that means for the current times that we're living in right now. And this is, uh, to be honest with you, it, was, uh, it took some study and research. This is not a, a subject that I consider myself an expert in. Um, it's not something that I, that I honestly have given a lot of study to up until the last few weeks. And, uh, and so I, I want to make sure that everything I say today, I'm going to try my best to um, be as biblical as possible and put as little of Seth's opinions into this message as possible. Does that make sense? I think there's, um, there's some there's a tendency with this subject to put in theories and opinions and mix that in with a few Bible verses and call that truth. And I want to be careful that we don't do that. And so my title this morning is just seven questions about the end times and the strange times we live in. And so I just kind of thought of what are some questions that I, I've seen people asking, I've heard people asking, or maybe some questions that I wish people would ask, and so that we can kind of get a better understanding of what does the Bible say about the end of days, the last age, the, uh, the new heaven and new earth, about the rapture, about the tribulation, about the, the uh, restoration of all things, about when Jesus returns. What does the Bible say about that? And what does that mean for the times that we're living in right now? And so I, this is kind of going to be a question and response kind of thing. Uh, uh, notice I didn't say question and answer. Uh, I'm giving, going to give a response to some questions, and I'm not sure if it's going to answer it or not, but I'm going to try, but I'm going to respond to it. And here's what I want to do. Tonight during our online prayer service, the, you know, we always have a devotion as part of our prayer service, and I want to go a little bit deeper. And so if something is said today that we talk about in the sermon this morning, and you say, I want to know more about that, or that gives me another question, or would you kind of teach on this or something like that, then I want you to either text that to me if you've got my number, or if you're watching online, you can comment on the comments there and leave that question, or you can send a private message to our Facebook page or my Facebook page, or if you're here in the room, write it down on a piece of paper and give it to me, and then tonight we'll go into a little more depth with some things that maybe you're feeling and sensing and have some questions about. And so that's what I want you to do. I'm going to teach about these seven questions. I almost guarantee it's going to bring up more questions. And so if you have something, hey, would you just speak to this? Or I read this somewhere, or I heard this preacher say this, and, and can you kind of give some, some insight into it? And again, I'm going to try my best to just do the, what the Bible says and not what Seth says. Amen. And so write them down. If you have questions, comment online or send a private message. Um, text them to me if you've got my number. Um, I, I would say it out loud to our church family, but it's also online and I don't necessarily want everyone on Facebook to know my cell phone number. But if you need it, let me know. Yeah, I, I you know, wisdom, <laughs> wisdom there. So we're just going to dive on in. Seven questions about the end times and the strange times we're living in. You might want in your Bible, I'm going to be going back and forth a lot, but I'm going to always end up back in Matthew 24. So you might just want to turn there and kind of leave your finger in, in Matthew 24 because we're going to visit that chapter quite a bit. But the first question is, number one, are we living in the end times? Are we living in the end times? I'm going to give you the short answer, and then I'll expand on it. My short answer to that question is yes, but maybe not how you think. 
Yes, but maybe not how you think. We live in the last days, we live in the end times, because the last 2,000 years of history have been the end times and the last days. When Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, that initiated the last days, the final age before God is going to restore and recreate his good creation. Amen? So the writers of the New Testament, they believed that they were living in the last days. If you read the Bible, if you read the New Testament, it is absolutely clear they believed they were living in the last days 2,000 years ago. When you read the words of people like the Apostle Paul or Peter, you get the idea that they even believe that Jesus is going to return during their natural lifetime. When they're reading it, when they're writing, they, they, they have this idea that Jesus could return before they experience natural death. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, he's preaching to the crowd after the Holy Spirit's days. And when he preaches his sermon, he quotes the Old Testament prophet Joel, and he says, In the last days it shall be, declares the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 17. So even at the very birth of the church, Peter says, What's happening today is a sign that we are living in the last days. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 says this. He says, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So many Antichrists have actually come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. He says that 2,000 years ago. He writes those words. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul he actually discourages Christians from getting married. He, he clearly says, he says, this isn't a commandment. This is just some advice. And he says, it might be best to not get married if you're already single, because if you're, if you're living already as a single person, continue to live that way. And here's the reason why. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the appointed time has grown short. For Paul, it wasn't that it's bad to get married. He just said, naturally, as, a, as, as part of a marriage, you are devoted to another person, and that takes time from you being able to devote yourself to the gospel. And he's not saying that's a, necessarily a bad thing, but he's saying the time is so short, don't waste time getting married. Go tell people about Jesus because Jesus could come, time, come back at any moment. Now he goes on and he says, but if you're going to burn with passion and, and if you can't help yourself, go get married and, you know, don't sin and, and not get married. But he just, he's given kind of a, he's not given a commandment here, but he's given you an insight into what he thinks about when Jesus is going to return. He's saying the time is so short. And he goes on to basically say, Jesus is coming back soon, and there's a lost world that's dying and going to hell, so spend all the time that you can preaching the gospel. Here's my point with all these scriptures. Just like the writers of the New Testament lived with hopeful expectation that Jesus would soon return, you and I in the year 2020 are supposed to live with that same hopeful expectation that Jesus will return soon. Now, for 2,000 years, every generation has believed that they were living in the last days. Things would happen in the world that would lead people to say, you know, look at the signs of the times. It, it, it's got to happen, be happening soon. Really, one of the first major times that Christians thought that they were in the end times was the year 67 A.D. 
year 67 AD, the Roman Empire destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus actually predicted this, and he said that the temple would be destroyed and then the end would come. And so when the Romans destroyed the temple, all the Christians said, oh, this is a major sign. Jesus must be coming back soon. In fact, some of those New Testament letters I just quoted were written after the year 67 AD, and they were written by the apostles that had heard Jesus say, when the temple's destroyed, you need to pay attention. And so they saw that actually happen in history. Jesus predicted it, and then it happened, and they say, oh, this is a major sign. Um, another time, 395, the year 395 is when the fall of the Roman Empire happened, and the Roman Empire was split into many different kingdoms and jurisdictions. And people thought when the empire falls, because they read that in Revelation, that when the great empires of the world would fall, then the end would come. And so they thought even in 395 that the end would come then. In 1284, the Pope, Pope Innocent III, he believed that the year 1284 was going to be the year that Jesus came back because he had counted 666 years from the rise of, Muslim, of Islam in the 600s, and he figured 666 years after Islam, that must be when Jesus is going to return. So they thought that in 1284. In 1517, uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door at Wittenberg, and that in initiated the Protestant Reformation that shook the entire Christian world at that time. And when he, when he did that, people started believing. People started pulling out of the Roman Catholic Church, and the Roman Catholics started calling the Protestants Antichrist, and the Protestants started calling the Pope Antichrist. And they said, this must be the signs of the times. The church is falling apart. In 1910, Haley's comment was uh, coming by, and people thought that that was a sign of the times, that, uh, that, that, that the earth was going to be destroyed by this comet. 1914, the outbreak of World War I, the first global wartime conflict. If you were living in those times, you thought this has to be the end. This, this must be what's going on. 1939, World War II, uh, oppression and genocide of Jews in Europe, the establishment in the 40s and 50s of national Israel. All of these things, people were like, this has to be a sign of the times. 2000, Y2K, you remember that? People, this has to be it. This is, this is going to be it. 2012, you remember the Mayan calendar thing? They had figured out that the Mayans had predicted the end of the world. People thought it was then. And then, good old 2020, military conflict with Iran. That started at the beginning. Of the, you remember that was just in January, that whole thing with Iran was going on. Uh, presidential impeachment, that was this year. COVID, racial and civil unrest, protests, riots, nasal swabs and microchips, murder hornets, face masks, election year, all of these things. People are, if you, look, Facebook's a dangerous place these days, you know. I mean, it's just kind of scary scrolling on there people are just everything that's happening in the world all at once and it seems like is this the end times is the, are these the last days every generation of christians for 2000 years has believed that when they saw things happening in the world they're experiencing the end times matthew 24 jesus says this he says and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars we hear that one a lot people quote that one when we're talking about the end times guess what Wars and rumors of wars have been going on for thousands of years. Ever since the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, you turn the next chapter over and Cain kills his brother Abel. Wars and rumors of wars have been going on ever since then. But listen to this. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. We forget to quote that part. 
Wars and rumors of wars, we're going to panic, and, and things are going uh, to hell in a handbasket on earth, and what are we going to do? And, but we forget the next line. It's the same verse. He says, but see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. These are the words of Jesus here. We quote that first part, but we forget, don't be alarmed. This is going to happen because you live in a fallen world with fallen human beings that are given over to violence, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. See, people read that and they looked at World War I and II and they said, this is it. This is the sign of the times. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Remember when Haiti had the big earthquake and preachers were on TV talking about that? Remember? See, this, this happens habitually in Christian history. Many will fall away, Jesus says. Lawlessness will be increased. We've seen that. They were doing it in the 90s with the Rodney King riots in the streets. They've been doing it in 2020 with the, with the riots and lawlessness in the streets these days. It's, it's a cycle. You see what I'm kind of getting at here? Lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Here's my take on this, and I will insert some opinion in here. Here's my take on this. We need to take the signs of the times seriously, but not fearfully. We need to take the signs of the times seriously, but not fearfully. Jesus said, don't be alarmed. And for every generation of Christians for 2,000 years, they've been able to read the words of Matthew 24 and say, yeah, we're in the end times. Because we are in the end times, and we have been for 2,000 years. And we should always, as Christians, live with that expectancy and with that, uh, that anticipation that Jesus could return at any moment. See, the point and the right question here isn't, are we living in the right days? The right question to ask is, since we're living in the last days, what should we be doing and how should we be living? That's the question to be asking. What should we be doing and how should we be living? That's why Jesus, immediately after uh, his passage about the signs of the times in Matthew 24, he says, stay awake for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming? You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He doesn't say that to make you afraid. He says that to make us realize we need to take every opportunity in the times that we have to pursue Jesus and to pursue bringing other people to Jesus. Come on. Question number two. Are the end times something to be afraid of? I've kind of answered that already. My uh, simple answer is no. The long answer is 2 Timothy 2.17, or 1.7, excuse me. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. Some translations say a sound mind. There are some Christians saying things that I question whether they really have a spirit of a sound mind or not. People say some unsound, unwise things in the name of Christianity, in the name of fear of end times, and all this kind of stuff. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. This is all going to happen. It's going to be okay. He wins in the end. Hallelujah. Amen. We don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of power, power over the enemy, power over sin, power over hatred. We have a spirit of love. We're supposed to love our neighbors even when they don't agree with us, even when they persecute us. 
and a spirit of self-control or a sound mind. Don't go crazy. Some, I'll say it. Don't go crazy. The rest of the world can go crazy. We don't have to because we don't have a spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. I want to encourage you for a second to uh, turn off the Hollywood version of the apocalypse that many of us have watched and seen on screen and internalized. Volcanoes blowing up, nuclear bombs going off, detonated aliens, all these kinds of things that we see on television. When we speak of the end times, I want to be clear about what we're speaking of. When we speak of the end times, we're saying there will be an end to sin. There will be an end to evil. There will be an end to sickness, to suffering and disease, an end to death an end to hunger and poverty and war, an end to human trafficking and sexual exploitation, an end to religious conflict and terrorism, an end to addiction, an end to the devil messing with you and your family. That's the end times that the Bible's talking about, and that's not something to be afraid of. That's something to be excited about. Those are the things that we look forward to. That's why we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we live in a world that is corrupted by sin and evil, and he is going to one day restore his good creation, and he's going to cast the devil into the lake of fire for all of eternity, and there will be no more hell, no more pain or sickness or sin or devastation, and we will live in peace and joy. That's what we're talking about, and so there's nothing to be afraid of. The only reason... Anyone would need to be afraid of the end times is if you're not ready to stand before Jesus. If you're not ready to stand before Jesus. If you know in your heart of hearts that you don't have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, then you aren't ready to stand before him and claim his forgiveness through the blood of his cross and the power of his resurrection. And if you haven't submitted to his lordship, as the ruler and master of your life. That's the dividing line. That's how you know. Do I need to be afraid of what's happening in the world, or can I have peace with what's happening in the world? Am I ready to stand before Jesus? So if you're a believer, a true believer, not just a church person, but a true believer who has repented and made Jesus Lord of your life, there's nothing to be afraid of about what's to come. Non-believers, if you're in the room or watching online, you don't have to be afraid either because you have this moment right now, this opportunity to get yourself ready to stand before Jesus. All it takes, the Bible says, Romans 10, 9, and 10, is to confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that, he raised, that God raised him from the dead. That's what it takes to be ready to stand before the Lord. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the next moment of your life, but you have this opportunity. And I promise you, if you're living in fear about what's going on in the world, if you're living in fear about what's happening, if you're living in fear of a virus or of, of protest or of, of governments and microchips and nasal swabs and all those, if you're living in fear of those things, listen, you can have peace today. You can have peace today if you would make yourself ready to stand before the Lord ready to stand before Jesus. You're not guaranteed another opportunity, but you have this opportunity today, right now, to say in your heart and with your mouth, I'm making Jesus Lord of my life, and I believe he's the Son of God who died and was resurrected for me. Question number three. 
Does the Bible talk about things like microchips and a cashless society as signs of the times? In short, my answer is no. The Bible does not say anything about microchips, and it does not say anything about cashless societies and coin shortages and those kinds of things. Again, I want to encourage you to separate what you have watched and what you have read that's not in the Bible from what the Bible actually says. Just because it got shared by a Christian on Facebook doesn't mean it's right. And just because a preacher paid a television station money to have some airtime on TV doesn't make him right. Just because I'm saying it doesn't make me right. We need to go back. What does the scripture say? In the 90s and 2000s, especially in American evangelical Christian culture, we were heavily influenced by some books novels and, and things that came out that talked about the end times and talked about the last. Y'all remember those things? That, I mean, they were real popular. Remember, I, I, there, there's one in particular that I won't name because I don't necessarily want anyone to go read it. But there's one in particular, a series that came out, and we have been so influenced in our culture by that one author's idea of how things might work out that we have allowed that to become almost equal with what we believe about the Bible. And we need to be able to separate Christian fiction from biblical truth. Okay? I don't, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings here, but I'm just telling you, not necessarily there was anything wrong with their fiction, but it was fiction. It was one person's ideas about how things might turn out. It wasn't Bible. Okay? And so be careful about that. Microchips, cashless societies, conspiracies about the UN or the EU becoming one world government, the Illuminati, Bill Gates and vaccines and those kinds of things. These are all theories about current events that people believe might be signs of the times or the approaching end of the age or the return of Christ. They're just ideas, though, and they're just theories. They aren't in the Bible. And be careful listening or watching to anyone who says this one thing that's happening in the world right now is the sign that things are about to happen. Why do I say be careful about that? Because not even Jesus would do that. When they came to him and they said, Lord, what's the signs and how we know? He says, it's not for you to know. That's in Matthew 24. He says, the angels don't know. He says, I don't even know. Only the father knows when that'll happen. And so he says, hey, look, you're getting too caught up in looking for a sign instead of what you're supposed to be doing with the time that you have. Come on. What's the sign? He says, don't let anyone lead you astray. It's not for you to know. Not even the angels know. I don't even know. But it's all going to happen in God's good timing. He says, when you see signs, when you see things that are going on in the world, don't let it get you alarmed. Don't get alarmed anxious or angry when the world does exactly what the Bible said the world would do. I have, as, and it's more so now that as a pastor, when I'm working in church ministry and in the community, where people will come to me and they say, did you read this? Or did you hear this preacher? He said this. And did you read this book and this thing in the news this week and all those kinds of things? And people will get in a fit over it. I mean, they're so worked up over it. And I want to tell you, we don't have a spirit of fear. We have a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind. The Bible has already told us that the world would go crazy. The world's been going crazy since the fall of Adam. We know that. 
We don't need to get surprised when the world does exactly what the world is supposed to do. We're not supposed to join in or contribute to the craziness. As Christians, we are supposed to be a prophetic voice calling people out of the chaos of sin and into the peaceful kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our job. We don't contribute to the craziness. We say, yeah, the world's crazy and messed up because of sin, and it's been that way for thousands of years. But listen, there is a God, there is a Lord, there is a Savior who has delivered us from that, and you can have peace even in these crazy, chaotic times. That's the message. That's the truth. That's what we should be speaking and preaching. You, we, now listen, you and I, we are allowed to have, for political and practical reasons, opinions about what's going on in the world. I'm not saying you can't have opinions. I'm not saying that you can't have thoughts about it. I wouldn't be a fan of a cashless society or, or I don't want anyone microchipping me without my knowledge or anything. I understand. But resist the urge to take those feelings that you have about political and practical matters and then equating those personal or political feelings with what the Bible says and what's biblical truth. That's what we have to be careful about. You need to be an informed citizen. You need to know who to vote for and what to do and all those kinds of things and what's best for our nation, what's best for our neighbor, what's best for our future and for our children. That's all great. That's not what this sermon's about. This sermon is about saying, okay, that's fine, but don't equate what you think about politics or about world events with what Jesus thinks about politics or world events or what the Bible says about what's supposed to be happening in the world today. So you can have an opinion, about some of these types of things, you should. You should be an informed citizen, but don't take your opinions and treat them as equally as important as the Word of God. I know that's shocking for some Christians, but my opinion is not God's Word. God's Word is God's Word. And in fact, I'll go even deeper. Not even my interpretation of this book is God's Word. Jesus Christ, as revealed in the Scriptures, is the Word of God, John chapter 1 says. Jesus is the word of God. This is the book that points us to Jesus. Amen? And then my interpretation of it isn't always right. And so I reserve the right anything I say today to be wrong about it and to change my mind about it at some point because it's not my opinion that's God's word. It's what this book says that's God's word. Amen? So the Bible doesn't necessarily talk about microchips and cashless societies and those things, but there are some people... And I would sometimes tend to agree with them that could say, could these be signs that we're even getting closer? Yes, maybe, but that doesn't mean we have to be afraid or we have to be anxious or we have to be worried. Does that make sense? Are you all with me? Did I lose you? Question number four. Who is the Antichrist and should I be worried about him? Who is the Antichrist and should I be worried about him? How many of you would say, and, and we, I know, how many of you, would, you've heard this, you've heard, let me put it this way, you've heard that the book of Revelation talks about the Antichrist. How many would say, yeah. Did you know the word Antichrist is not found in the book of Revelation at all? It's not there. The word Antichrist is only found in two books of the Bible, two very short books, 1 John and 2 John. That's where the word Antichrist comes from. Now, Jesus speaks of, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, he speaks of false Christs that would come, people who claim to be the Messiah but aren't. And the book of Revelation 
uh, or excuse me, Paul talks about a man of lawlessness. And so some people equate the Antichrist with what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians. Revelation is a lot of symbols, and there's a lot of symbols in Revelation. And the, the book of Revelation uses the word beast. And a lot of people, what, what Bible scholars have done is they have attached all of these different ideas and said it's talking about the same person. That's possible, and that's one reading of Scripture. But I want to maybe, let's look at what it really says, okay? Most of the passages that talk about the word Antichrist don't speak of one person but of any person who denies Jesus and works against the cause of Christ. I'm going to show you all four times that the Bible mentions the word Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, we read this one earlier. John writes and he says, You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Watch this. So many Antichrists have come. So we're living in the last hour, he says. A couple of verses later in verse 22, he says, This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. In chapter 4 of that same book, he says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world today. That's important to point out, that it says now is in the world today. And then Second John 1 verse, it says, Many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh. Any such person is the deceiver and is antichrist. I don't have time to get into how we got from these verses to believing in one individual person in the last days. I don't have time to quite get into that this morning. But let's just say people have put together several scriptures in the Bible and come up with that idea that during the tribulation, there will be an antichrist that will rise up and lead one world government that is totally against God, okay? That, that's a theory out there. It's a, it can be a good one. I'm not saying it's wrong, but that's not what these verses are talking about. These verses are actually John combating some false ideas about who Jesus is, and there were some false preachers going around saying that Jesus didn't really have a physical body, that Jesus was just a manifestation, a spiritual manifestation. He didn't really physically die, so he wasn't really physically resurrected. And John is saying, that's Antichrist. If you start messing with who Jesus really is and who the Scripture says Jesus is, that's Antichrist, and it's motivated by a spirit of Antichrist. And Antichrist just means against Christ. It's going to lead you astray. So that's what John is talking about. There is a belief because you read about the beast in Revelation and you read about the man of lawlessness that Paul talks about and you, you, we hear about the false Christs that Jesus would talk about in Matthew 24 and they put that all together and they say that after the rapture, when, during the end times, that there's going to be one major world leader that, that leads and kind of unites the whole world in this cause against Christ. And that may be true. But listen, we have been and known that there are, world leaders in the past, world leaders now, even church leaders, that they denied Christ in his resurrection. And so the Bible's really getting at the point of there are people that will come and try to lead you astray with spiritual language, but they will get you to believe something false about Jesus. And that's what he's really getting at. My reading of scripture, again, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm inserting my opinion here. I read the scriptures to you. Now I'm going to tell you what I think about it. 
my reading of Scripture says that there's not just one Antichrist or human individual that's going to come to power or anything like that, but that there is a spirit of Antichrist that motivates political powers and influential leaders, of which there are many. And the Bible says they've already been. John says it's already here. It's been going on since 2,000 years, apparently. And it happens today. It happens in world leaders today. It happens, unfortunately, even in Christian leaders and church leaders that lead us astray from what we really believe about Christ. And that's my opinion. I put that in there, okay? You can take it home, do with it what you want to do with it. As far as theories, excuse me, do I need to worry about Antichrist or the Antichrist or, or the spirit of Antichrist? Only in the sense that you and I need to be concerned and care about people who are ever deceived by the spirit of Antichrist, to, to be led astray from who Jesus really is. There are theories about the, the Antichrist and the future of one government system that's not a direct reading. It's a theory. It's maybe a good theory. But the reason, the thing we should really be worried about is our people being led astray by a spirit of Antichrist that leads them from the Jesus that we read in the Bible. Amen? That's, that's what the point of the whole thing really is. Antichrist is any person or any spirit who denies that Jesus came in the flesh and that he is the resurrected Lord. And the only reason I need to worry about Antichrist is if I'm allowing people who deny Christ to have leadership and influence in my life. I want to say that again, because now we're not talking about the future anymore. I'm talking about your life right now. The only reason that you need to worry about the Antichrist is if you're allowing people to have leadership and influence in your life who deny Jesus Christ. That's not to say you can't be friends with people who aren't, aren't Christians and you can't have influence, but don't let them have too much influence on you and lead you astray. Amen? Question number five. Okay, we talked about the Antichrist. Now, what about this thing, the mark of the beast, and should I be worried about that? We get this idea of the mark of the beast from Revelation chapter 13. It speaks of the beast who would rise up in the earth, and a lot of people say that that's the Antichrist. Probably when John was writing Revelation, he was talking about the corrupt Roman Empire. And it says, verse 13, or chapter 13 says, Also it, the beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. This is where we get into the stuff about cashless societies and microchips and nasal swabs that you see people talk about lately and, and that kind of thing. And, and you know, I, I remember even... Uh, Growing up, I was at a store one time with my grandmother, and the total came up to $6.66, and she bought something else because she was not going to pay $6.66 because Revelation 13 said that's the mark of the beast. So this is where we get that stuff from, right? The idea is that if there is a future Antichrist who's going to come to power after the rapture, during the tribulation, if that person comes to power, he's going to enforce that everyone who wants to participate in that global economy has to take his mark. And that mark, the Bible uh, says, is a number of a man, 666. But I want to break it down a little bit. All right, we're going to go deep here. I need you to stick with me. 
the book of Revelation has two levels to it, okay? The book of Revelation has two levels. On one level, the book of Revelation was written by a first century church leader named John to first century Christians as a critique and a warning against the corrupt Roman Empire of their day that was oppressing and persecuting Christians. That was the, if you just read it, if you were living in the first century and you got in the mail the book of Revelation from John and you started reading it, you would pick it up and read it and immediately recognize this is a letter from my pastor to me telling me about what's happening in the world right now because the Roman Empire is the powers that be and they are oppressing and persecuting Christians. That's the first level. The second level, the book of Revelation is a book written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as a message to all Christians at all times, as a warning that the powers that be in the world are not the final authority, and that Jesus will ultimately have victory over the sinful corruption of the world and establish his eternal kingdom and his new creation. Anytime you read the book of Revelations, excuse me, Revelation, you need to keep those two levels in mind. At one level, it's talking about the Roman Empire during the first century. At another level, it's talking about Jesus has ultimate victory over sin and evil and corruption in the world. And at some point in the future, that final victory will be evident and will be manifest. So when John is writing in Revelation 13 and talking about a beast and a mark of the beast, he's talking about where a person's allegiance and devotion are. He's critiquing the Roman Empire and its demand of utmost allegiance and devotion to the empire and to religious worship of the emperor as a god. The Roman emperor was, was worshipped as a god on earth. They, they called Caesar Lord. And the claim of Christianity is Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. That's why they were persecuted by the Romans. They refused to worship the empire. They refused to worship the emperor. So he's critiquing this demand on Christians that you have to worship this false god, Caesar. So the number 666 is actually a code. Because you couldn't go out and say this uh, directly. It gets you killed. That's what got Jesus killed. He went along and said that I'm king and, Jesus, and, and if Jesus is king, then Caesar is not. And that got him killed. So John's being smart here, and he's not writing it out exactly but there is, and you have to go back and do some research on this to prove if I'm right or not. There is this code, this Jewish numeric system called gematria. And gematria uses numbers to equate with letters. And if you take 666, or some uh, old manuscripts actually say 616, and you, you spell that out in this Jewish code gematria, it spells the word Nero. Now, Nero was the Roman emperor at the time. And so when John is writing in Revelation 13 and saying there's a beast, and if you don't worship this beast, you can't buy bread, and you can't participate in the economy, you don't pledge allegiance and devotion to this beast, and he says the beast's name is 666, he's talking about the current Roman emperor at that time. And there were periods in Roman history, if you lived in the Roman Empire, where you had to carry a certificate or a seal or a mark to show that you had made religious sacrifice to the emperor in an act of worship. And if you didn't have that certificate that proved that you had worshipped the emperor, 
If you didn't carry that with you, if you didn't possess that mark, you could not buy, sell, or trade. This is the message that Paul is saying, or excuse me, that John is saying here. He's saying, listen, I don't care if you need to buy bread or not. Don't ever pledge your allegiance to the emperor above your allegiance to Jesus as Lord. That's the message here. That's level one, right? There are some, there's a reading in scripture that says that something similar is going to happen in the future under the rule or reign of the Antichrist. And that's where the concerns about microchips come in and, and cashless societies. And if you don't go into and, and deal with this and have the microchip and all those kinds of things, then you're going to be left out and all those kinds, and you're not going to be able to buy bread and all those sorts of things. But again, that's not clearly stated in the Bible. That's someone's idea. It's just how many Christians believe things will play out in the last days. The Bible does not warn Christians about being tricked into accidentally or unknowingly taking the mark of the beast. I want to dispel that fear right now. You can't accidentally take the mark of the beast. You can't be tricked into it. You can't, no one, even if they do microchip you, it's not about having the physical microchip or whatever the mark might be. It's about the devotion and allegiance of your heart. It's about who are you pledging your devotion and allegiance to. So the Bible doesn't warn you like, hey, watch out. They might trick you and chip you when you don't know it. It doesn't say that. What this passage is actually saying is it's warning Christians to not be deceived by leaders who cause you to deny Christ and begin living an unchristlike life. That's what you need to be concerned about. I just rocked some people's world. You don't need to worry about being tricked into taking the mark. You need to worry about being deceived into following some human system or human person as your ultimate devotion, your ultimate allegiance, instead of your ultimate allegiance and devotion being given over to Jesus Christ. If there is a literal mark, a microchip, or some other technology that requires in the future, we believe in the rapture. We believe that we're going to be out of here before that if you're with Jesus. Amen? We believe he's going to take us up. We believe that, that he, that 1 Thessalonians 4, that he's going to call us home, that we're going to be with him. We don't have to worry about it. Now, I know that most people aren't necessarily worried about being tricked into taking the mark. They say, they see this new technology and they see these things happening in the world and they just say, well, this is a sign of the time and we're getting closer. Well, that goes back to question number one. Yes, we're in the last days and we need to live every day like it's the last day. So take advantage of every opportunity you have. Amen? Question number six. Actually, I have this in my notes and I want to say it. You don't need to worry about being tricked into the mark. But you do need to be aware of creating idols out of politicians, political parties, ideologies, nationalities, or any other human group or single person. It is easy to be led astray to worshiping something or someone other than the one true God revealed in Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a slow kind of deception that takes place. And that's the warning of Revelation 13. Don't allow your life to be marked by anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. 
Question six, we're almost done. What does the Bible say the end of the world will be like? Revelation 18 tells of the day when corrupted human empires and oppression, hu oppressive human systems will fail and fall. Again, on one level, this is talking about the Roman Empire. It's going to fall in it, and they predicted that. But on another level, it tells the story of the futility of humanity and its need for redemption and restoration. Every empire that's ever risen has fallen at some point. You think back ancient Egypt, most powerful empire on the face of the earth, it fell at one point. The Roman Empire fell at one point. The British Empire, they used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. The British Empire is now one island. Every empire is going to rise and fall at some point. Revelation 18 says that at some point, every human institution, every human governmental system, it's all going to fall because the next chapter, Revelation 19, it speaks of the great celebration in heaven and the bride of Christ being eternally wed to Christ the bridegroom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this chapter shows Christ as the rider of a white horse who with the saints of God and the armies of heaven will defeat the power of Satan and all of his demons. And then in Revelation 20, it tells of the eternal defeat of Satan where he is cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And then you get to chapters 21 and 22 that tell of a new heaven and a new earth. A day when, quote, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Hallelujah. That's what the end of the world is going to look like. When Satan is cast into a lake of fire for all of eternity, and death is destroyed, and sin is defeated, and sickness and suffering are all arrested, and we will live in a kingdom. Of a, of a one true God who is a good king, who is a just king. And the Bible says nothing unclean will ever enter that place, nor anyone who does what detestable, what is detestable or false. There will be perfect purity, perfect joy, perfect peace in that new heaven and new earth. Revelation 22 says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there in that city, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face and watch this, his name will be on their foreheads. Not a mark of some human institution or some antichrist or of some, some government system. No, his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more darkness. There will be no need for a light or a lamp or the sun for the Lord God will be our light. And they, you and I, will reign forever and ever with the Lord. He shares his creation with us and we get to rule and reign over it with him. This is the end time. That's the end of suffering, of sickness, of sin, of death. But it's the beginning of a new creation, perfectly restored with perfect relationship with our creator. The only reason, again, that we would have to fear this is if we're not ready to be with him. Come on. Question number seven. What does this all mean for you and me in 2020? in the age of murder hornets and face masks and COVID and whatever. What's the new thing? The, the seeds from China? That's the new thing that people are worried about? Whatever. I don't know. What does it all mean? I spoke a few weeks ago and I talked about the fact that we live currently in a famine of truth in our generation and in our culture. 
We see daily messages with false information, misleading information, and misinformation. We have to weigh every message we receive in the balance. Is this fake news? Is this political bias? Or is this religious manipulation? 2020 is a confusing time. In the midst of everything going on in the world right now, Christians are sharing message about the end times and the end of the world, the mark of the beast, the virus, the election, and sometimes that information can be confusing and conflicting. Sometimes people share the right message but the wrong motive. You know, you can say something right and still be wrong. Sometimes people say things that might be theologically correct but the motivation isn't love and respect for your neighbor. And unfortunately, sometimes we get tempted to say things, speak things, post things, read things, and the motivation isn't always godly love or godly grace. Sometimes it comes off as, I've got it figured out and you don't, and I'm better than you. And, I, and so, it, you know, it, it drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. The stuff that people will say that they would never say to your face but they'll share it, they'll post it, they'll click it, those kinds of things. And it comes off as pointing a finger instead of opening arms to welcome someone into truth. There's a lot of fear-mongering, of panic, of suspicion, and accusation, and a lot of it takes place in the name of Jesus or in the name of religion. I want to be clear about a few things that we believe here at Believer's Fellowship. We believe that one day... The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are remain or who are left will be caught up together with them, and we, there with them we will meet the Lord in the air, and we will be with him always. That's First Thessalonians chapter 4. We believe in the rapture of the church, the blessed hope, where he's going to take us and we're going to receive a glorified body, and those who have died in Christ will be resurrected to a glorified body, and we will live and dwell with the Lord for all of eternity. Amen? We believe in that. So we should live like that could happen at any moment and be ready. We believe that when Christ returns to this earth, he will restore and establish his reign of his kingdom. He will establish eternal peace, that we who are in Christ will rule and reign with him in his new kingdom. That's what the end of Revelation says, is that Christ will return and the armies of heaven will come with him and we will defeat Satan. You're going to get to get revenge on the Satan and the devil that's messed with you your entire life. You're going to get to see him bound and cast into the lake of fire for all of the pain and heartache that he has caused, not just to you, but to your family. Listen, one day the devil's going to regret messing with you. One day the devil's going to regret messing with your babies. He's going to regret messing with your family because the Bible says that you and I get to rule and reign with Jesus Christ and we get to see the devil answer for all that he has done. Come on. We believe in a final judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous, that we only become righteous through relationship with Jesus Christ, that those in Christ will receive eternal life with him and his new creation, but those, it is God's, and it is God's desire that all would have that relationship and would be saved, but that there are those that will resist his grace and his offer of mercy and will be left to eternal punishment along with Satan and all of his demons. That is the great heartbreak of heaven. 
No preacher and no Christian should ever make that statement with relish in his voice. There ought to be tears in your eyes and a crack in your throat when you think about there are some people that would resist the grace and the mercy of God and affect their eternity. We believe in a future eternal new heavens and new earth, a creation restored to its original perfection where we will dwell with the Lord and he will dwell with us for eternity. And we believe that these last things will happen in God's timing, maybe in our natural lifetimes. We believe the scriptures tell us to live in joyful expectation of Christ's return while simultaneously doing everything we can to reach people for the cause of Christ. Whatever we read, listen to, or believe about the end times should always do two things. It should always lead us to a more passionate pursuit of Christ, intimate relationship with Christ. And second, it should always lead us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with anyone and everyone we come into contact with. I get concerned when people's Christian beliefs about the end times leads them to bunkers and leads them to off the grid and leads them away from people. Listen, if we believe we're in the last days, we don't need to be hiding. We need to be going out into the world and telling a lost and dying world that there is a God, there is a real heaven, there's a real hell. We will all have to stand before him one day. And so if I believe that it's going to happen in my lifetime, the answer is not to go hide in a bunker. The answer is to go and preach the gospel. There's a tension that this causes for me. On the one hand, the Bible tells us that we're supposed to anticipate and seek the coming of the Lord, that we're supposed to be excited about it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he uses an Aramaic word. He says, Maranatha. It's a part of his prayer. It says, Maranatha, and it means, come, Lord Jesus. It's supposed to be Christian's prayer, come, Lord Jesus. Revelation shares the image uh, in uh, chapter, excuse me, Revelation chapter, I lost it. Where is it? Chapter 6, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 6, there's an image of those martyrs, those men and women, those saints who have died for the cause of Christ. They've died because they were Christians. They were persecuted. They were murdered for their faith. And it shows this picture of these martyrs who had died for their faith, and they're under the altar in heaven, and they're crying out to the Lord, and they're saying, How long, O Lord, will you let this continue? How long, O Lord, will you let evil continue in the world? How long will you allow evil to stand? And and so there's this cry of every Christian's heart to say, Lord, how long are you going to allow suffering and violence to take place in the world? And how long until you come back and you restore all things and you perfect creation? And there's a prayer, there's an honest prayer that we should have, a, a cry, a lament in our hearts. Lord, when will you set all things right? When will you finally deal with sickness? When will you finally deal with evil in the world and sin in the world? When, Lord, will you do that? But on the other hand, there's this tension of, well, if he comes back today, I've got friends and family members that aren't ready. I've got a community that I live in that's not ready. So do we pray for him to come quickly? And if we do, are we taking advantage of the time that we do have to share the gospel with people who need to hear it? Or are we using all of our 
efforts and resources to share conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theory is not going to save anybody. My politics aren't going to save anybody. The gospel can save somebody and can change somebody's life. There's a tension. Come, Lord Jesus. But, Lord, give me time to share the gospel with my friends, my family, my neighbors, even those who don't look like or act like or think like me. Our belief that Jesus could return at any moment ought to lead us to taking every moment we have to share the gospel with as many people as we can. It should put our lives in perspective. What are we waiting for and what are we wasting time on? Paul tells believers, he says, take advantage of every opportunity because the days we live in are evil. We live in a corrupt world full of sin, and Jesus is going to deal with that one day. But it's our job to make sure as many people as possible are on the right side of a relationship with him. How many wasted hours have we spent watching television, scrolling Facebook, playing games, sitting on pews, arguing with family? instead of spending that time advancing the message of Jesus Christ, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness to our community, our neighbor, our nation, and our world. Our beliefs about the end of the age shouldn't send us to a bunker and it shouldn't send us into a panic. It shouldn't put us up on a judgmental, self-righteous ledge or pedestal. We don't get saved so we can sit around waiting for the rapture while a world around us goes to hell. We don't get angry at the world around us for doing exactly what the Bible said the world was going to do. We don't stand outside of a burning building watching people perish, hearing the screams of those in agony and wag our heads in judgment that they didn't have sense to get out. No, we put on the full armor of God. We put on our fire suit and we rush the flames and we drag as many people out of that burning building as we possibly can. Because in Matthew 24, after Jesus gave his disciples the signs of the times, he said, don't be alarmed. Don't go into hiding, but go into the world because the gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come, he says. That means you and I still have a job to do because there are still places and there are still people in this county that don't have an adequate witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are still people, there are still places in this country that don't have have an adequate witness of Jesus Christ and have had an opportunity to put their faith in them. There are still entire groups of people and nations on the face of this earth in 2020 that have never heard the name of Jesus, that have never heard of his mercy, of his grace, of his power, of his healing. We have work to do. We have work to do. Read this quote. What shall our attitude be during this period? In Matthew 24, the Lord predicts the crossing over from one age to the other will be characterized by disturbances in physical, political, and religious realms. 
he tells his people, lift up their heads in joyous expectancy when these things come to pass, and to keep your lamp lit and filled with oil, and faithfully use the talents you have for the Lord.